The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So, to begin the afternoon session after having eaten, I expect that you're taking note of many food-borne material experiences now, right? You know, feeling full, a little sleepy, a little heavy, a little, there was pleasantness while eating, all of those gustatory indulgence experiences, food-borne material experiences, right? And even now, as the, as the process of digesting the food is taking place, there's that whole sequence and, and uh, experience of the comfort and the discomfort and the results of all that. Also, food-borne material experiences. That's what we're pointing to. And from the time of our conception and being nourished by mom, in the womb and being nourished by mom and other food since birth, all that we, all of the replenishing of the body that occurs is due to food-borne materiality, right? So as long as the mind is there and living and, and doing its thing in this body, there will be a replenishment of material uh, the material element of this process so as uh, old material elements pass away as all things do new ones will be replaced by or the old ones will be replaced by new ones from food new ones from karma new ones from the mind and new ones from the environment See, we can talk about this whole physical process without reference to anatomy, without reference to cells, or the biology, or the anatomy of... of we can. I don't know if anybody would go to a doctor and get that kind of diagnosis. But, you know, your heat element's a little weak. You need to turn it up and, you know, a little bit of food elements here. But nevertheless, it's what we pay attention to as uh, the, the material element in our, in our meditation practice. As a, a kind of a conclusion to this morning's discussion on the material element, I want to share another uh, testimonial from the meditation center where I um, stayed in Burma. And as you know, uh, or I mentioned last night that uh, recent studies here in the West of treating psoriasis, you know, the skin condition psoriasis, with uh, the usual medical treatment involving light and medicine. But when the Western medical treatment for psoriasis is accompanied by listening to um, guided meditation in mindfulness, the lesions of psoriatic uh, lesions heal in a quarter of the time. Is a clear, well, scientifically uh, confirmed uh, value of mindfulness in that uh, it has an effect on the curing or the relief of the symptoms of psoriasis. This was John Kabat-Zinn's work. 
concluding, psoriasis cleared approximately four times at four times the rate of those controlled subjects who did not use the mindfulness tape while receiving treatment. Okay. Well, in the, mon- in the monastery where I was staying, there was a young man came, 20 years old, had a severe skin disease. Uh, between the ages of 16 and 19, he was living in a part of Burma where he ate a lot of wild game, including a lot of venison, wild cats, snakes, iguanas, and other traditional meats, or I should say non-traditional meats. Uh, but nevertheless, he was eating a lot of that. And after three years of eating that, he, he started to have a skin condition. <laughs> and uh, his whole body became covered with uh, uh, itchy and painful uh, skin. And he says that, you know, or it's reported, his blood turned unclean and impure. I don't know what that means, but his complexion became spotted and he had white patches of leucoderma and he was kept awake at night uh, by the itching which interfered with everything else he wanted to do in life, studies, social life, etc. He tried uh, medical treatment medicine and got injections daily for three months and it had no effect. He went to a skin specialist who also gave him medicine and injections for two months and there was also no result. And in fact the nurses and doctors at the uh, dermatological hospital uh, expressed doubt that any number of injections could cure his disease. Uh, He said that the only, only way he could bear with his skin condition was to go to uh, very entertaining distractions and for a a brief period of time for an hour or two he could get absorbed in some entertaining distraction and his skin wasn't driving him crazy so other than that he was just miserable with his skin so uh, his grandfather who had practiced in the monastery at the meditation center uh, told him that he should go to the the monastery and strive for the Dharma. And um, let's see. And even though the itching was ever present, he did go and practice and started the, the practice of noticing and taking note of his breath. And even though he was doing that, the itching did not disappear. After nine days of that, the itching was so intense that he left the meditation center and went back home where the itching continued and he alternated between scratching and trying to be mindful of it. So his grandfather returned him to the meditation center (laughs) where the meditation uh, instructor encouraged him to note the itching uninterruptedly, continuously, if need be, stating with confidence that it would eventually disappear. He was inspired by the encouragement and after five minutes of noting, the itching disappeared. And for this he he, he got uh, very joyful. At a second sitting, after returning, uh, the itching returned even more intensely and it caused him to cry in tears. And he says, though I was persistent and firmly continued to note it, he was quivering and shivering as if he was possessed by by spirits. The itch did not go away. Then he says, I brought my attention back to the rising and falling of the abdomen and began watching and noting them instead. 
While doing so, and without the slightest idea of how it could have happened, the itching suddenly and wondrously disappeared. Subsequently, every time the, re-itching, the itching reoccurred, he, it would eventually vanish upon being noted. This made him happy and enthusiastic to practice. On the 19th day of his retreat, the itch returned, and though noted, it did not vanish. Tears fell again, and he was sweating. Suddenly, the entire body was seized by convulsions. But being resolute and persistently noting, the itch finally vanished. Now, here we are, just noting the itch. Now we're into convulsions, shivering, shaking, swaying, still noting. After five weeks, the intense itching occurred on his legs, arms, back, and head, and it disappeared with resolute noting, but later the entire body became itchy, and when noted firmly, all itching abruptly vanished, as though leaving through the body through the crown of his head. The uncomfortable heat that he had previously been experiencing also disappeared similarly. Now, while sitting outside after that, a stray dog came to sit beside him, but its stench was so intense that he drove the dog away. But the stink was still there even when he re-entered his room and the dog was away. And upon investigating, he discovered that it was his own body that was stinking. But even after a washing uh, and scrubbing uh, with a bath and soap and bath, um, he could not remove the smell. And the stench continued for two days. And because of his embarrassment, he did not dare report to his teacher. And while not mindfully noting, again, the smell vanished and all the itching and irritating sensations also disappeared. His blood cleared up and the skin condition uh, cleared up. The leukoderma vanished. The itching stopped. His skin was restored to its normal, fresh, smooth, and pleasant complexion. And after returning home, he went back to the doctors uh, for a medical checkup at the dermatological hospital. And they all expressed surprise at his appearance and inquired what he had done to rid himself of the disease. Cool. Well, sounds pretty miserable. But what I want to point out is the faith in the teacher's instruction and the persistence and the determination to keep noting no matter what the physical manifestations of disease or symptoms or whatever were. I mean, just you just have to ask yourself if that was your condition. Would you have the faith to keep noting? To keep noting. With itching is one thing, but when you get to convulsions and shaking and shivering and there's a lot of well, what is it? What is it that boy had that allowed him to do that? It's worth asking. It's worth considering. What is it? Because I mean, he had a mind and he had a body. We have a mind. We have a body. And somehow he was able to um, persist until some success with his mind in overcoming this condition uh, of his body. Moving on from that, where did we get this body anyway? (laughs) You know, uh, talking about all this disease and all this unpleasant symptoms of disease we might ask, why do I have the body I have? Why don't I have a nice, healthy body and not experience disease and be energetic and only need a few hours of sleep? And why can't I have a memory that remembers everything I heard? Would you want to remember everything you heard? Oh, my God. (laughs) Nevertheless, uh, how is it that we get what we got? 
know, with this package in this lifetime? Well, the Buddha was asked this question uh, in the form of, you know, people saying, well, why is it that some people are born, you know, and are very wise? And some people, no matter how much they practice, they just really remain pretty dull. How come some people are born into and enjoy a life of ease and luxury and abundance and other people struggle their whole lives and can't can I ever get the means together to be comfortable? Why is it that some people are born and die young? Why is it some people who are born live to be very, very old? Why is it that some people who are born have a sickly life their whole life and other people who abuse their bodies, smoke, drink, stay up late at night, all that, never get sick? Why? He was asked. Why? Karma. The Buddha said, it's because of our actions in the past that we are born with the conditions that we have. Now these conditions are not a sentence of condemnation for what you've done in the past, but it, they do condition uh, what quality of mind and condition of body we come into this world with. How we work with it, how we relate to it, how we uh, practice with what we have or what comes with the package will determine how we actually, what we actually experience and will plant seeds for future experience both in this life and future lives if you believe in that. Now, I want to acknowledge that our understanding of human limitation is uh, we, we come into this world with a, a certain genetic package and a certain genetic profile and a certain uh, cultural conditioning that we grow up in. And every, everyone has to grow up in a culture and receive certain cultural, family, religious conditioning. It just you can't live in the world. A human cannot live in the world without receiving that conditioning. So we're not trying to suggest that somehow awareness can supersede the genetic profile that limits what is available to this package. Just as we have a genetic profile, we also have a karmic profile. And you might ask, well, why is it that some people, you know, why is it that people live a healthy life and don't get sick too much? Well, the Buddha said, you know, long life is a result of not killing. Good health is a result of not harming. Appearing beautiful, having a beautiful appearance is a result of having a loving attitude and the corresponding other side of things. So, do we have to believe that? No. But how much time do you spend and how is it that you understand your health condition, your chronic health condition, your uh, sporadic health conditions? How we, you know, we may use other 
conditioning or other ways of understanding, whether it's a medical uh, uh, understanding or sometimes a spiritual understanding. Karmic understanding is helpful in this, in this, for this reason, that it makes us conscious, more sensitive and more aware of the motivation with which we do the things we do. Because that's what karma is all about. Karma is about intention. What is the motivation and what is the source of the motivation in doing and saying and speaking and thinking what we do? Is it coming from a place of understanding, non-attachment, non-aversion? Or is it coming from a place of reactive habits of you know, greed, hatred, and delusion? And the more wisdom and awareness we bring to our intentions, the more pleasant the results will be. Long life, good health, beautiful appearance, living a life of, well, at least ease, if not abundance. On the other hand, if we have lived and continue to live, or to the extent that we do live, a life of carelessness, reactivity, springing from the roots of self-interested greed, hatred, diversion, delusion, confusion, then the results, according to the law of karma, will be unpleasant. Short life, not good health, uh, appearance less than, well, that might be challenging for you in some way. And this is just the uh, operation of the law of karma. Now, is the law of karma true or not? Well, let me ask you, is the law of gravity true? Is the law of gravity true? Are you, are you going to argue with the law of gravity? No. Why? Well, you know, the guy who sat under the apple tree and the apple fell on his head and he said, you know what I noticed? The law of gravity exists. Or this phenomena of things falling to the earth was explained through gravity. And so he articulated the law of gravity based on what he observed. The law of karma has been articulated by those who have carefully observed the unfolding of the mind over the course of lifetimes, lifetime or lifetimes, and have watched what it is that occurs in the mind when you act in certain ways, what is the result? And it's their articulation. Now, to us, it may sound like, well, that's just so much belief. Well, it is belief to us because we haven't observed it, or we may not have observed it so closely as to uh, be able to confirm what the law of karma seems to be saying. Or there are some of the details in the law of karma which are, you know, we don't want to believe. I would, I'm certainly not asking you to believe in the law of karma as dogma, but to consider, to hear it, and just to consider the possibility, to suspend your doubt, if you will, and just to practice from that place and to keep to let that knowledge be in the background as you view the unfolding of your mind, the unfolding of your life and the unfolding of your mind, and to see what the, uh, what the observable results are of the intention with which you act. Okay? Did you have a quick comment? You've already, you've already talked to this, but I just want to make sure to clarify it with my own words. So if you see yourself being unskillful, yes. And you notice this, maybe it's in your actions or the yeah, way that sure. you've, 
used your words, yeah. and you come back to either that person, that object, that thing, even to yourself, and you talk to that particular piece, are you helping to unwind that? Yeah, sure. Even the very awareness of the awareness of unskillful actions is a skillful act, the awareness itself. And anything you do to mitigate that, even after the fact, by expressing remorse, apologizing, asking for forgiveness, offering forgiveness, any of those actions, performing any Dharma actions or sharing the merit, any of that serves to mitigate the unwholesome consequences of, or I say the unpleasant consequences of unwholesome actions. Sure. Yeah. So we're not saddled with, you know, the the inevitable results of un, of the the inevitable unpleasant results of unwholesome actions because all of our Dharma practice serves to address it and mitigate it even now. Yes? So the two examples you gave of the spontaneous healing, yeah. um, there was something in their past. Life or current, past life that brought on that disease and it was their striving for the awareness that undid that negativity from the past that allowed them to be healed. In part, I would say yes. The the predisposition to have to contract that disease was conditioned in part by karma, but certainly for the young boy, it was conditioned in part by the food he ate. It seems, and through practice of awareness, the uh, the mind became more purified. And I'm going to speak about this more, but just the process where the mind becomes purified and from that the body or the material elements become purified, overcoming in time the diseased elements, the diseased material elements. But in speaking about karma, uh, it's important to begin to at least open the door of your mind to this understanding and how it impacts what you do and how you understand your uh, health, uh, it's not always what you eat. It's not always, you know, some genetic disposition, predetermined genetic disposition. You know, there's a there's a multiplicity of factors involved there. One of which is uh, karma from the Buddhist teaching. Worth worth at least keeping in mind. And as we pay attention to our minds and bodies unfolding over a lifetime, we'll begin to you know, we'll begin to see, if it's true, you'll begin to see signs of, of verification. Yeah. So you don't have to believe it based on dogma. But So if you become an arhat... If you become an arhat? Then, <laughs> like if, say, a person becomes an arhat, does, does that sort of stop karma from unfolding? No. No. What, because take for example the Buddha. The Buddha became enlightened, fully enlightened. And an arahant had the same level of liberation as an arahant. He still had his, to live out the, this human body. He still died. Still got sick, still died. Still had headaches, still had backaches. Yeah. Why? Well, well, you know, he had headaches because when he was uh, a young boy in some other lifetime, he hit a fish over the head with a stick. Oh, oh gets a headache. Even though he's enlightened, still got to live, got to live with it. But he didn't suffer because of it. Now he knows, he, he has the awareness and the understanding of, oh, what's going on there. Doesn't get identified with it. Oh, my poor head. 
He sees it as, oh, karmic retribution for that act. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah. But in his actions, <laughs> yeah. in his actions in the world after enlightenment, he was not creating karma. His actions were performed without there being wholesome or unwholesome karma. They're ineffective. They're just functional actions at that point. I'd have to go, go through chapter one of the Abhidhamma to go into that in more detail. But we don't have time today. Uh, so what I wanted to uh, talk about is this colorful chart here <laughs> on karma a little bit. There's, there's much more information here than we can ever go over in a whole, a whole day. But there is a little bit that I want to uh, point to. Up in the upper left-hand corner, we're talking about, or you see these four squares, talking about the function of karma. Now, karma is action. It's the quality of the intention in any action of speaking, thinking, or physically moving. And it is said that karma conditions rebirth. Or in Buddhist understanding, we don't really say rebirth because there's not something that is reborn. But we talk about relinking, the relinking connection between this life and the next life, or the relinking of one consciousness, the last consciousness of the past life, and the re being relinked or linked to the first consciousness of this life. Okay? When one is about to die, there is a stream of consciousness going on, and something arises in the mind, and the mind grasps it, and it's the last thing that the mind grasps before the karmic fuel of this life expires. That last karmic act, conditioning the relinking consciousness, is called the reproductive karma. That's that first piece up here. It's the last. The last thought of a dying being which conditions the future birth by producing mental and material aggregates at the moment of conception. Okay? Now, that may be a wholesome or an unwholesome karma. Okay? Let's assume that it's wholesome because to be born as a human being, it is said, is just the fruit of a tremendous amount of wholesome actions. Just a pile, just a mountain of wholesomeness has allowed us to be reborn as a human being. Thank goodness. Because if you ever read the descriptions of the realms of the below below human, of the 31 planes of existence, the, the hell realms, the animal realms, the hungry ghost realms, and the assures, you don't want to be, you, you, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Now, some people understand these 31 planes of existence as being actual physical places. Anybody ever seen one? I mean, other than the animal realm? No, no. Most of us, we don't know. You know, it's just good idea or maybe bad idea. So, if you're uncomfortable with ascribing a physical location to these realms, understand them as qualities of mind or mind states. You ever been in a hellish mind state where you were just seething and burning with anger and rage? 
Yeah, well, we know that. You ever been in an animalistic mind state where you're just like, mm hmm, yeah, yeah, well, I won't talk about that one. And, or the hungry ghost realm where the mind is just constantly looking around at all that it could get to satisfy itself in, all that it wants, all the abundance of everything, everything around, and you can't get it. That's being hungry without being satisfied. And no matter how much you get, still not satisfied. Jeez, I think the human realm is America, something like a hungry ghost realm. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it's like endless dissatisfaction, even in the midst of abundance. What kind of mind is that? That's suffering, isn't it? Yeah, okay, so we don't have to imagine that there, whether there are or aren't other planes of existence. You know, uh, as, as Menindra said, you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. You know, Deepama, one of our teachers from India years ago, she confirmed, yeah, there's, a, there's other planes. She would visit them. She knew, she could see, she could go there. So, nevertheless, we're here in the human realm, thank goodness. Now, the karma that reproduced this birth has given us this, this momentum. Evidently, it's really good karma because in this lifetime, we have all found the Dharma. How did you find the Dharma? You think it was accidental? You think it was just, how did, how did, how did you ever come to the Dharma? Now, we all have our own stories. You know, some people it was accidental, somebody was dragged kicking and screaming by their spouse, other people, you know, whatever. Somehow, we all got to the Dharma. How is it that you could recognize the wisdom and the value of what the Buddha said? Why? The Buddha's teachings are out there for all the world to see in here. And the vast majority, whether they read it or not, don't get it. Don't get it. Don't want it, don't believe it, not interested. Doesn't have any meaning to them. Why? Well, no supportive karma. They had the good fortune of being born a human, but no supportive karma to make the most of it. Where we have supportive karma because supportive karma is uh, assists or maintains the actions of the reproductive karma in the course of one's life. So anything that supports your life as a human being and the benefit of it, getting the, getting the most benefit of it, is a karma that supports the initial relinking or rebirth karma. Hmm? Then there's obstructive karma. Now we have this momentum going along and, and, and we're capitalizing on uh, the benefit of being a human by making the most use of it hearing the Dharma, practicing Dharma, realizing the Dharma to some extent. And then along comes what? Some politician that you disagree with. <laughs> no names mentioned. But some politician you disagree with and you get angry. You get cynical. You get, you know, just... Oh, yes. What's that state of mind? That's obstructive karma. That karma is interfering. That's obstructing your growth in uh, the Dharma and getting the best benefit from your human life. Obstructive karma. Why did you get angry? Well, an unpleasant sensation rose in the mind. You heard somebody say something, unpleasant sensation rose. The unpleasantness arose due to karmic action of the past and you got angry. Well, got cynical. Yeah. 
we got judgmental. Those are all forms of aversion, unwholesome karma, and plant that's obstructing the wholesomeness that you're trying to create through your Dharma practice, right? Okay, are you getting this? I, I hope you've all heard this somewhat before, so you can kind of get it a little bit. Yeah. And then there is uh, that's obstructive karma, and then there's destructive karma. Uh, you know where. Out of carelessness, you do something, you stick your finger in a socket, boom, life's over. Wow. The reproductive karma hadn't had a chance to run its course, but some, uh, you know, not just obstructive, but a destructive karma. Another karma entered to cut off the life force of that reproductive karma. Huh. Why is it some people die young? (coughs) Destructive karma. The results of some destructive karma arise at the end. Well, we can say, you know, oh, it's an accident, it's a mistake, you know, somebody was, some nut was, you know, drive-by shooting, whatever. You know, there's that level of explanation. But why is it that that person? I was at a, uh, I was doing a retreat up in uh, Seattle a couple years ago, and I met with the, the, you know, I met with the group of young people. Uh, you know, 20-year-olds, I guess, you know, teens up in their 20s or maybe the early 30s. And I was meeting with them and just asking them about their dharma and uh, what got them interested in the dharma and et cetera, et cetera. And there was a couple of women there, young women. Uh, you know, they were probably in their mid-20s and they're both professionals and they're both uh, in a coupled relationship and neither one had any interest in kids. So I said, huh, um, what do you suppose the karmic precursor of this condition is? What do, you th- what do you think, as a karmic being, what is it that kind of gets reborn as a female in the West with all this opportunity, no interest in kids? And, and maybe some of you are in the same situation. I said, well, just consider, just consider. What was the opportunity of childless women before the 18th century? Nunnery? Any other options? Prostitutes have a lot of kids. Nunnery, what else? Huh? You know, hmm? Yeah, well, Maybe, I mean, there's just, what happened to all the nuns of the past? Women who have no interest in kids, where are they reborn? Why not here? Happens a lot. So instead of just looking at our genetic, our our parental conditioning, we also want to understand that we are a karmic being, that we are where we are, we come into the world as we do, we find the life we do conditioned by karma, past, a lot. And our ability and our good luck in hearing and finding the Dharma in this lifetime is no accident. You know, I'll tell you, we've all been doing this for a long time. You know, and here we are again, thank God. You know, and and may I please, may, may you allow me to articulate uh, my aspiration that we all have this opportunity 
to hear and practice and share and realize the Dhamma together again in the future, whether it's future next year or future life. Because I, I don't want to be born anywhere where I can't hear the Dharma. Right? Okay. When you talk about the Dharma, are you, is it a global sort of mountaintop view and all different religions also lead to the Dharma? Or are you being really exclusive in saying only the Buddhist path leads to the Dharma? Um, I'm saying liberation from suffering, freedom from suffering. Whatever, whatever path will bring you to the end of suffering. You know? And all all religions, you know, have some something to contribute to that. Yeah, you know, I was talking to somebody. Uh, hmm, was it last night? No, maybe at the Mayo Clinic. Can't remember. Somewhere recently, and she's strong Christian, but she comes to Buddhist teachings because she she has some resonance. She says, "But I'm strong Christian," and I said, "That's okay. That's okay. If you're a good Christian, you'll be 99% good Buddhist." Right? Good Christian, good Buddhist, you know, I, most of us are not going to be able to tell the difference. Right? So let's not, let's not split hairs over the 1% that might be a little different belief. It's just a belief. Let's look to the reality of what the experience is behind the belief. When you get there, when you, you, know, when you get to union with God or you get to be an Arahant, let's, let's talk then. <laughs> Which one? The destructive karma. Yeah, I think that's a question I can't answer. You know, I don't really. And the Buddha said. You know, and, and I'll cop to what the Buddha said <laughs> instead. Uh, you know, there are four things that you, you want to be careful not to ponder too much on. And one of them is karma, the unfolding of karma, because it just drives you crazy, you know. But to the extent that you, you kind of get the gist and you start paying attention, you start confirming what you can, fine. But there's a lot of details in the unfolding of karma. Can't figure it out. Like, why do I have to wear glasses? I want to figure out the karmic cause of that. And it's like, <laughs> don't get involved. You know, don't go there. Huh? What? Oh, uh, I can't remember. Oh, one is the power. One is the power of a Buddha's mind. What the Buddha knows. The other is the power of a concentrated mind. You cannot know. You cannot know. There's no end to it. So you can't. You can't fathom it. And then I think the other one is the expanse of samsara. Maybe something like that. I'm not sure. Just how far, how wide we have ranged in our search for happiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Could you be talking about the relationship between karma and ourselves and the personal nature of causes and conditions? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the fourth. That's the fourth session this afternoon. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But what I really want. Oh, go ahead. One last question here. Do you also speak to people who have serious disease? 
I, I expect there's people in this room that have serious diseases. So you heard the question, the uh, blame the victim, uh, you know, I'm sick because I'm a bad person or was a bad person and therefore I deserve what I get. Well, that would only be possible if there was really somebody there to blame. It is due to wrong view of this process. It's being identified with and having an identification, a belief in an identification with there being an enduring entity within this process that in the past acted this way and in the present is receiving the result of it. But actually, when you start practicing mindfulness and you watch the unfolding of the mind, what you see is that what is arising in this moment is a conjunction of conditions, physical, mental, environmental conditions, giving rise to an experience, something being known. If in this moment of it being known, you identify with the knowing or the it that's being known, you've solidified a sense of self and you can believe that it was a pre-existing self, you know, same self yesterday and the day before and you know, the year before and the decade before. However, if you see that, oh, this moment has arisen due to these impersonal conditions just arriving at the same time, giving result to this particular experience, then you don't identify with it. You don't see it as a me. And therefore, you don't understand or you, you understand that any me that existed in the past was equally just a momentary conjunction of conditions coming together that we identified with. That's why guilt is the stupidest thing in the world. I mean, to be quite, well, careless in my speech, but nevertheless, it's, it's like, what is guilt? Guilt is saying, that person that existed back then was bad, and I'm still bad. It's like, well, that is, well, it requires hanging on to that sense of self that was constellated out of impersonal conditions. Hanging on to it and hanging on to those conditions and that sense of self through hell or high come hell or high water until you get here and you remember it and say, yep, still guilty. Okay, you know, go for another decade, recall it again. Yep, still guilty. Why do we torture ourselves that way? Well, we torture ourselves that way because we don't, we don't see the impersonal arising and passing away of everything. Actually, this is the fourth session that I wanted to talk about, but we'll get to it. But, but that's, that's what's happening. Now, in, in practical terms, people do feel sometimes uh, guilty. They feel, uh, they do get into that blame the victim. You know, I must be bad. I must have done something bad. Uh, it's just wrong thinking. And what that person needs to hear 
his right view. They need to hear it. They don't necessarily need to believe it, but they need to hear the right view of the unfolding of karma, the right view of non-self. They need to hear it so that the knowledge of that, not accepted as dogma, but just suspended in the mind as a possibility so that as you practice, guarantee your practice will confirm that right view. Okay, so that, that's the way out of being identified as the guilty one. Hmm? Yeah, it's not, it's not an immediate like uh, denial of, of, of guilt. That denial of guilt is, is, is just reinforcing it. That, that doesn't work. And, and in, well, that's a sidetrack. Never mind. Forget that. Uh, but what I wanted to show you on this page, there, there's just a ton of information here. I want to show, I want to go through that stream of consciousness at the moment of death down at the bottom of the page. Death, rebirth, and the stream of consciousness. And I kind of want to n- kind of review what actually happens at the time of death. Now, why is this important? Because we die every moment. If you can see that, you'll be reborn every moment. So, while this is, is a depiction of, or an articulation of the stream of consciousness at the end of a, what we would call an existence, a human existence or any other existence, uh, it is the mind stream that's, that's unfolding. And this mind stream unfolds in this way continuously through our life. Not only at our death, but it's just that the reproductive karma of this body at some point comes to an end. The time runs out. You know, the body just, you know, time's up. Whether it's genetic time or biological time or karmic time, it's over at age 2, at age 20, at age 60, at age 80, at age 112, whatever it is, at some point, it's over. What happens to the mind when the body dies? Well, here's here's a possibility. Okay, let me try to put this into English. (laughs) As life is going on now, there are moments of time when we're asleep, and yet we we don't know anything, we're not dreaming, nothing's happening, except it's clear that the stream of consciousness is going on, right? because we're still alive. As soon as the stream of consciousness stops, this body starts decaying for the last time, turns to dust. That's it. Over. Finished. So while we sleep, we're not dead. And the stream of consciousness is going on, maintaining the life of the body. Okay. When something causes that stream of consciousness to go, hey, what, what, what's happening? You know, some loud sound occurs, some thought occurs in the mind, some odor occurs in the room. Something shakes the stream of consciousness, kind of awakens the stream of consciousness, says, oh, 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 what's happening? What's happening? And the mind takes in, through one of the sense doors, an object. It takes in a sight, takes in a sound, takes in a smell, takes in a a touch sensation, takes in a, a, a conceptual idea, a thought. Something in the mind, a mental, a mental object. Now, when that happens, the mind checks it out, just goes, and says, "Is this a good thing or an ungood thing?" The mind says that, and it quickly then 
runs a stream of karmic impulsions towards that. So if a pleasant experience arises, and the mind says, yeah, pleasant, boom, it'll be followed by five to seven moments of karmic impulsion in the mind, creating karma. And then that that connection with that object stops, fall back into the, the, the kind of the inert stream of consciousness and it goes on until another thing rattles your cage and brings the consciousness to the present moment checks out what's going on evaluates it has a karmic relationship to it falls back into the stream of consciousness and that goes on endlessly but as we approach death as the mind stream is approaching its end the object that arises in the mind to be taken as the last object in this lifetime is one of three things. It's either a karmic act you performed in the past where you recall practicing generosity or you recall medi- you know, practicing meditation or you recall uh, some wholesome some wholesome action that you've done, some compassionate action, you recall that. or you recall some unwholesome thing you've done. You know, some unskillful speech, some unskillful action, some unskillful thoughts. That arises. Something from the from a karmic action in the past might arise. Or some implement of a karmic act may arise. So an image of the Buddha may arise because you spend a lifetime bowing to the Buddha and checking out that image. Just like, Got it, got it. Really imprinting that on the mind. So as a karmic act of humility, the image of a Buddha is strong. So in that close to death moment, that image of the Buddha may arise. Wholesome wholesome moment. Or, you know, needless to say, there are other implements of unwholesome actions that could also arise. So it's either a karmic act arises or an implement or some image or some icon of that karmic act arises. There's a third possibility, and this one is intriguing. A sign of your future destiny appears. A sign of your future destiny appears. You know, an image from the life to come or the plane of existence to come appears in the mind and either it or the karmic act or the karmic implement, the icon of a, of, a, of a karmic act, arises in the mind. And because the mind is weak, the mindfulness is weak, everything is weak, the mind is, is just a split second from this life being over and the stream going on, that the mind cannot shake it. The mind can't get rid of it. The mind can't get rid of it. And it, it, it grasps onto that. At which point, the stream, the karmic force of our reproductive karma ends over with this object still being held in the mind followed by one moment the death moment the karmic result of that last grasping is the relinking consciousness of the next life now what that means is the subconscious or the unconscious or the stream of the, the life force of this lifetime the object that uh, the consciousness of that life force carries is an object from our last life. 
we have more moments in this life taking an object from the past life as its object than we do moments of taking an object in this life. The whole force, the whole tone of the mind in this life is conditioned by the last thought, the last moment, the last split second of the last life. That's why it's important to be as aware as you can be at the time of death. All of our practice is rehearsal for retirement, so to speak. What determines what that last thought's going to be? Yeah, that's really good. What determines what the last thought's going to be? Well, here it is. <laughs> the order of the effect of karma. Now, what is it that's going to appear in that last moment as, as we're about to expire? Well, weighty karma will appear if there is a weighty karma. A weighty karma is either a wholesome karma of uh, strong meditation practice. If you've attained jhana and you still can attain jhana at the time of death, that will be the object that appears, conditioning your rebirth. For into sure? For sure. <laughs> Guarantee, the Buddha said. <laughs> On the other hand, if you happen to have uh, killed one of your parents or uh, injured uh, the Buddha or slandered an arahant or something like that, well, that's pretty weighty. Think about it. What's that mean? What does it mean, weighty karma comes to the front? Weighty karma is something that has a very strong intention and often repeated that's wholesome or unwholesome. It is so strong. I mean, to attain jhana and to still be able to attain jhana at the time of death or up until the time of death, you have to have planted that intention in your mind hundreds of millions of times. It's really strong. It is so powerful that that will be the force that appears in the mind. To kill your parents, to kill one of your parents, to take a really gross example. What, what kind of intention? You just have to have a tremendously deluded state of mind. The delusion would just have to be so powerful. But that's an intention. That's what will arise. That's what will condition. Now, many of us, aren't going to have either one of those weighty karmas or any of those weighty karmas. So the next option <laughs> for us is proximate karma. What you are doing at the time of death. You know, if you're practicing meditation, that's what you're doing. That's the, the current stream that's being, current stream of intention that's being uh, uh, energized. And if the stream of, if the reproductive karma of this life drops off right there, then it will have its effect. Or if you're, you know, anxious and fretful about, you know, something, you know, whatever it is that you can be anxious and fretful about as you're about to pass away, could be a lot, uh, then, then, then that will be the, 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 the karma that conditions the rebirth relinking consciousness. 
If there's no strong proximate karma, then the habitual karma, that which you have done for long periods, that has, that's a habit. That's which, that which is a habit will take over and will be the, the karma of your relinking consciousness. Now, a couple of years ago, well, now it's several years ago, um, we had a teacher's meeting in uh, Spirit Rock. And the Dalai Lama came and a bunch of, a bunch of other elders from a lot of Buddhist traditions in, in, in the Theravada world came. And one of them was Mahagosananda. Now, Mahagosananda was kind of like the Dalai Lama of Cambodia. But during the, you know, the Khmer Rouge, when the Khmer Rouge was taking out all the monks of Cambodia, he went to Thailand and just meditated. After the Khmer Rouge was done with Cambodia, then he went back to Cambodia and really tried to reestablish uh, Buddhism and, and ordaining monks and, and getting the teachings published again in, in Cambodian language. And he was just a tireless servant of getting the Dharma uh, reestablished in Cambodia after Khmer Rouge. Well, he was, you know, we brought him to the States in 70, 80, 80, I think, 80. We sponsored him to come to the States and he set up a couple of monasteries here. And, and then um, as he got older, and when he was at this teacher meeting, he was kind of senile. But all he could do was offer the refuges and precepts. All the time he was offering the refuges and precepts, anybody that wanted them. That was his that was his habitual karma. He just that's what he just did a lot. That's what he was doing probably at the time of his death. What you do a lot in your life is where the mind will gravitate when there's no strength of mind to do anything different. Because as we get, as the body gets weaker, the mind gets, uh, we're, not, we're not able, we don't have strong mind. Or, if there's no weighty karma, no proximate karma that's commanding and no, no habitual karma that arises to the surface, then anything you've ever done in the past We better get a weighty karma in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, can 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 arise just kind of adventitiously, arise in the stream. Mind grabs it. Reproductive karma ends here. Conditioning, <coughs> relinking consciousness of the next life. Now, is this true? Is that true? How are we going to know? Do we have to wait till we die, <laughs> and then see? No, we don't. When you go to practice, when you go to practice intensively and you pay attention to what comes up in the mind, the first thing you'll see is all the heavy karma in your life. The heavy good and the heavy not so good. It comes up for review again and again and again. And after you've got some familiarity with it and you've kind of processed it and you've kind of got a, a kind of a balanced relationship to it, then what comes up? Oh, what's happening now? Oh, people in the retreat. Mm, yeah. mm. You know, you get your Vipassana Vendetta and your Vipassana Romance and, wow, it's like all of life is right there. Okay, so if, if that's what you're getting entangled with in intensive practice, well, you know, you've got a good idea of what's going to happen if it's proximate karma that arises in your mind. Or in your practice as you, you know, kind of clear up the weighty karma, the heavy, the heavy things in your life, and you clear up kind of getting entangled in the current proximate events of your life on retreat, then what comes up? Oh, things you've been doing habitually. 
for the last period of time since your last retreat. You see that. And then there's lots of just adventitious random thoughts, memories, plans, all kinds of things just kind of appear to be noticed. It's no different in our everyday life what comes up to be seen. It's no different than than what happens at death. The same thing is going on even now. What is it that your mind is getting entangled in? Well, right now, kind of proximate, proximate karma. You, mo- mostly, you're listening to me, aren't you? You know, if you're off, you know, imagining that you want to be with uh, Obama down at the the, the <laughs> other center, or you're kind of looking at your watch, saying, "God, at four o'clock, I've got an appointment with somebody," and you're planning ahead. Well, that's your karma. You know, just notice that. That's what ha- the same thing occurs at the time of death. It's just that the mindfulness is so weak that you can't turn away from unwholesome things. So that's why we want to practice wholesomeness as much as we can. So it's really, we don't have to wait till we die to see that. It's, it's all apparent. If you, if, you, if you watch the stream of consciousness unfold even now, you'll see what's going to occur at the time of death. Yeah? Can you speak to modern medicine and how it's extending life? You know, it's really, it, you know, the question is about modern medicine uh, extending life and maybe making it possible for the mind to deteriorate more. And, you know, so maybe, maybe it would be better to die young and, and have a wholesome mind or a, a better mind than to kind of have our life prolonged medically and have a less uh, wholesome, skillful mind. That's the kind of the comment and question. Uh, I certainly can't answer that with any clarity, but I think that if it's our karma to have the opportunity to have life extended, then it's a choice to make, isn't it? You don't have to take that medicine. You don't have to have your life prolonged. You can choose to, but it's not a version that would say, no, I I don't want that medicine. Right? Another topic or a similar topic is the question of whether to take pain medication as you approach death that distorts the mind with delusion. Yeah. And the question, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fair question. Should I, as or when approaching death, experiencing a lot of pain, should I take pain medication to dull the pain so that I don't have a lot of restlessness and aversion towards it, which would would then condition, or could quite possibly condition, rebirth or relinking consciousness. It's an important question, isn't it? A couple of things, a couple of comments about that. One is the Dalai Lama was asked that very question about taking pain medications. And he said something to the effect, you know, who you are and the karmic momentum of your stream of consciousness is so strong that any drugs you take towards the end of your life won't have any effect. Because who you are is so... I mean, who you are. Well, that, that seems to imply a, a who, a steady state who. But it's, it, 
implicit in that is the momentum of the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness in the mind is so ongoingly co-arising or arising again and again and again that you know the drugs may not even touch that level of the mind they touch the level of the mind that's experiencing pain but not touch the level of that of the momentum of the mind the karmic uh, impulsion the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of it on the other hand or in conjunction with that uh, when Manindra died Manindra is one of our teachers from India died a few years ago now four, three, three four years ago he uh, was living at home and he had a lot of pain. There was a period for a few months where he had a lot of pain and then there was a couple of weeks where he had just intense pain, just a lot of pain and he didn't take any medication. But at a certain point, the pain was over and his mind was still clear and he had three or four days of just utter clarity, no pain and was awake up until, you know, moments, awake and aware, mindful up until moments or, or the moment of, of death. We, we don't know exactly except that he knew when the family started chanting in the other room, the, their morning chant, and at the end of the chant he was, he was passed away. So he was pretty there. Another friend of ours had just, just recently passed away on uh, Maui. Also uh, during the phase of intense pain in the couple of weeks before she died, uh, took some medication, just enough medication to kind of ease the pain, but was able to somehow recognize when the pain was not there and stopped taking the medication and had, again, another three or four days of somewhat clarity. Not, not, not drug-induced delusion, but some greater clarity uh, as she approached the final time of her death. So I think that you know, it's a question for all of us to kind of keep open about and, and keep, you know, just see what is going to be required for us or, or those that we love as we're attending their death and, and not to get into a fixed must be, must not be, should be, shouldn't be type of state of mind about it. But I do want to uh, share another uh, story of, of someone at the monastery in, in Burma. And this person, let's see, oh, was an alcoholic. Now, alcoholism is a disease. It's not a social, moral failure. It's a disease and uh, recognized in, in, in our culture. And again, there's a lot of medical studies and uh, mindfulness uh, meditation with substance abuse uh, victims, if you will, uh, research being done, and there's just phenomenal results. I mean, it's just amazing how applicable mindfulness is to all kinds of diseases. Uh, not just, you know, skin diseases and tumors and, and other things, but including uh, alcoholism or addiction to, in, well, in the, in the States, crack cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, and others. But this, this case, uh, the story from uh, a young man in Burma he was a young man, married, and he was heavily addicted to alcohol. He was a real drunk. And his family members tried to get him to stop drinking. And they, they encouraged him also to, to go, to the, go to the center, the meditation center, to strive for the Dharma. 
because they had and they found it to be very beneficial in their life. So they encouraged him and he, he agreed to but when they came to pick him up to take him he was already drunk. So, so they had to sneak up on him and take him to the, take him to the monastery kind of before he started drinking one day and while there it was difficult for him to get started but once he got started he really got the hang of it and it said he strove seriously and found satisfaction. He actually enjoyed striving and practicing. And after practicing successfully, Nibbana, uh, he refused to return home. Now his wife was not happy about that. So uh, the monk had to encourage him and told him that he has responsibility. He has family uh, responsibilities he has to take care of, so he has to leave the monastery. He can't become a monk. He has to uh, go back and take care of his family and, and do the farm work. And he, 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 was, a, he was a farmer and a merchant. So. He said, okay, if I'm going to be home, uh, if I'm not going to be in the monastery doing that, then I'm going to practice mindfulness while doing all of those farm and, and merchant activities. And he did. Evidently, he really practiced in his daily life very diligently. And it said that he kept his mindfulness unbroken while, while working in the fields and, and selling his, peddling his wares. And then one time, he was really curious to see whether his um, addiction to alcohol could be reactivated. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or to, just to see if he had any interest anymore. So he, he allowed himself the opportunity to, to get close to and smell and just to, to kind of be mindfully present of what is going on in the whole uh, consumption of alcohol thing. He didn't, he didn't drink, but he got to the alcohol and he was smelling it and he was being mindful of smelling it and he entered Nibbana. Cool. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so insight arose uh, resulting in realizing Nibbana. Now, the amazing thing is when he was about to die, he remained mindful and related his dying process to his wife while mindfully noting the sensations in his body. And he said, oh, now the leg up to the ankle is, is dead. And then a little later, oh, between the ankle and the knee, oh, that, that part is no longer alive. Then from the knee up to the hip, he says, oh, that part of the leg has died. And he followed it, the dying process in his body, all the way up to uh, the seat. Now there's only life from the hips. Now there's only in the navel. Now it's only only in the center of the chest. Stage by stage, he described the changes that took place in his body as it was dying. Then he, said, then he finally uttered, soon I will die. Don't be afraid of dying because one day you're going to have to die too. Just make it a point to strive for the Dharma. Then he died. Wow. Cool. I think. I mean, it's possible. It's possible. You know, we don't have to die in a flurry of deluded confusion, bewilderment and what's happening and, and fear and anxiety and restlessness. We don't have to. We can, we can die with, with awareness if we, if we want to, if we, if we make the effort, if we, make the, if we have the intention. Could you yeah. say something about um, violent death? I mean, some people say, well, it's a person's karma. A person is murdered. Or um, in, in instances of, of violent death, how do we... I mean, I'm, I feel superstitious often repeating a little mantra in the hope that if the plane starts to go down, that that's what I'll, I'll think of. But I, I do, I, I worry, I wonder about violent death and 
and um, what happened. And, and it's not Mahatma Gandhi who died violently. So it's there are good people who died oh, yeah. violently. Yeah. So an obstructive or a destructive karma has risen that, that cuts off their life seemingly prematurely. Uh, I think for us, you know, kind of anticipating the possibility, not worrying about it, but just mm-hmm. knowing that hey, anybody can, you know, anybody could drive by and maybe I'll sit there. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think that what what we can rely on is not so much that we're doing something karmically at that time to result in that, but that the momentum of you know, the karma in our life, either the proximate karma or the habitual karma, will be uh, our relinking conscious, the condition our relinking consciousness. The fact that we receive a destructive karma in that way, well, that's that's former former karmic result. It's a result of former karma, not a current karma. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You know, as, as, as one of my teachers said, you know, why, why worry about anything that's happening or that might happen? We have all gone around this train, this station so many times. We've all said and done everything hundreds of thousands of times. It's already happened. Hundreds of thousands of times. Here we are, doing the best we can. That I, I find that, well, sometimes oppressive, but sometimes a relief. It's like, you know what? So I just told a, a mini lie, or so uh, I, I just did something that was unskillful. You know what? Been there, done that. You know, recognize it, uh, express your remorse, apologize if possible, do what you can, and know that, you know, life will unfold. It's not your fault. You know, yeah, there's causes and conditions, some of which are intentional, that you want to pay attention to. But there's a lot that uh, we, we receive just because. That's the way things are. Uh, three o'clock. Why don't we just take a, a short break? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.